welcome to Four Questions. I am here with Professor Ben Anderson, who is visiting us in Cambridge from Durham. As you know, anyone who comes within a mile of Cambridge automatically gets kidnapped <laughs> and has to come on my podcast. So, Ben is an expert on a really exciting field of uh, human, social, cultural, geography that is effects, thinking about our emotions. So today we're going to explore uh, neoliberalism and effects. So my first question to Ben is, what the hell are effects? <laughs> Um, that is a particularly good question, one asked repeatedly of me. Um, first thing to say is there's no, uh, there's no one single definition of what affect or emotion is. Um, it, there's, there's long been a claim that the field of emotion and affect has been neglected, downplayed, devalued. Um, I've always seen the problem that any uh, work in this field has to respond to being the exact opposite to that. Um, the problem is in fact that there's a multiplicity of definitions, um, of attempt, attempts to theorise, attempts to give an account of affective and, emo and emotive life. Um, so to answer this question, I, I kind of thought it would be best to give a kind of overview of how my thinking on this has kind of shifted and okay. developed, actually. Um, so to begin with, I think I very much thought about affect um, on one particular register. So for me, for me affect was the not yet uh, non-conscious um, dynamics of bodily life. Um, what does this mean, kind of like in, kind of like what does this mean in practice? Then, mm. um, affects for me were the the intensity that accompanies an emotion. Um, so, so the jolt of excitement on hearing. So, not an, not an emotion per se. Not an emotion per se. Okay. Th this, this, this at least was how I w how I was mm. thinking about affect at one st at mm. one particular stage. So, it's the it's the in intensity that accompanies uh, gets kind of like bound up in and gets, gets translated mm -hmm. through, um, if you like, the named emotions, mm -hmm. the kind of, uh, those emotions that we have a kind of recognised social cultural vocabulary for, um, fear, love, anger, etc. Um, and, uh, and along with many others in, in the discipline, I kind of held to uh, like a, a sort of analytic distinction between affect and emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, emotion being, like I said, the, the intensity that accompanies mm -hmm. and is translated into um, the named emotions. Um, I should say, as a kind of backdrop to that, um, the, how can I call this, the, uh, this was a point of kind of incredible kind of contestation and critique. Um, what, what work was that distinction doing? Um, and I think over the last, in particular, kind of five to eight years, um, I've really begun to rethink that distinction. Um, and I've really begun to think instead about, how, about trying to kind of co allow different definitions of affect to coexist alongside one another, to um, attempt to kind of, if you like, jut up and kind of resonate with, with, with one another. So I tend to kind of think now about affect in kind of three ways, really. Um, the first way is in, in relation to affect as, if you like, bodily, bodily capacities, that, that affect being there, a kind of umbrella term for uh, sort of hybrids of emotions, feelings. Um, so not having that analytic distinction anymore, which rested upon a kind of non-conscious, uh, conscious, um, or which then got translated into a non-intentional, intentional distinction. So that was, that's the first kind of definition I used, affect as bodily capacities question of what the body can do. Um, second kind of definition I use, um, or trying to think with in relation to that first and alongside that first, is really thinking about affect as what I've termed an object target of particular regimes of, 
regimes of governance in the context of different forms of power. So this is this is the way uh, the way in which, for example, um, I did some work on um, interrogation and torture in the war on terror. And this is the way how certain named states, um, dreadability, dependency, um, hope, were explicitly targeted, uh, were the subject of intentional acts of, of uh, manipulation and intervention. And so that second kind of definition of affect for me was, was to try and understand, okay, how, how does affect become part of, if you like, the the operation of a form and the logic of power. And then the third definition, which is the one I'm kind of staying with most at the moment, actually, and trying to do the most work around, um, is trying to think of affects as, um, if you like, uh, shared collective moves um, within, which, uh, within which people, kind of people uh, sort of make a life. Um, so this would be, uh, this would cut across mu lots of different kinds of concepts. So we, would, we can think here in terms of the atmosphere of a room and how the atmosphere of a room kind of envelopes and sort of animates people within it. Okay, but what, um, is, what is that concept? What is an atmosphere? Like, how, how can there be a collective effect? Because isn't a collective effect just individuals' emotions and how each individual feels in that room? Like, suppose we were to go to Cambridge mm -hmm. Hall, each of us would individually feel the formality, the, mm -hmm. the seriousness, the institutional, mm -hmm. the history, the wealth, the privilege, the whiteness, the class. Mm -hmm. Each of us would feel that and mm -hmm. be aware of that. Is there anything collective, independent, subsuming mm -hmm. on our individualized emotions? Yeah, the <coughs> this is a really great question. Really great question. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, the, but it's almost kind of necessary to start somewhere else for me, um, in that affect or emotion, whatever term we want to use for a minute, like is never and can never be individual. Um, affect and, and, and emotion, let's use those two terms alongside one another for now, um, they're always the expression and the enactment of a particular, particular form and kind of cluster of relations um, that, that produce the individual. Um, so there's no such thing as an individual affect or an individual emotion. Right. Um, so it's part of a process. It's part of a system. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the I like the vocabulary of relations and relationality, mm -hmm. um, perhaps a, a little more than kind of process and system. Um, but they're both attempting to gesture towards the same problem, mm -hmm. which is how to think about the think think about the um, social spaces. No, it's more, it's, it's more kind of a question of how do you, how do you understand that which is, it's in, that which is in intensely personally felt, but how do you understand that which is intensely person personally felt as always already um, an effect of and folding back into some kind of, if you like, wider kind of cluster, cluster of, of relations. So for me, and of course here, this is, this is not a unique kind of, um, thought to, if you like, the current work on affect, mm -hmm. far from it. Um, I, I've, I've said in quite a few occasions that all the work on affect and emotion, on emotion in geography is deeply indebted and would not have happened and would not be happening without um, the, the influence of feminist work, which of course that, that the kind of phrase, the personal is political, the way in which um, contemporary thinkers, uh, Elizabeth Gross, Lauren Ballant, kind of think around a phrase like the impersonal is political. Um, <coughs> they're both kind of, they're all sort of making that same point that that you can't start from the perspective of kind of like the individual, if you like, pos possession of mm -hmm. 
um, an emotion. An emotion isn't to, to begin with the expression of an individual. The emotion is the expre an expression which becomes folded into the constitution of individuality, but it's the expression of um, a relation. A relation. So, to go to so if if the starting point is different than its individuals in a situation kind of feeling this if if that feeling is already always relation relation it's a slightly separate question then about whether there is something if you like over and above the feeling of every individual so um, which question, produces who, an who atmosphere. We're talking here about an atmosphere. Hmm. Who feels an atmosphere? Who is subjectively <coughs> aware of an atmosphere? Is it not individuals? <coughs> It both, is, it both is and it isn't. Um, in some ways, it's a question of what's the um, like, what, what's, what's the kind of the social, what's the social unit? Like, let's take your example of a formal. Um, so, uh, first thing to say is that an atmosphere um, will will be differentially expressed and translated um, into 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 the um, into the bodies of the different participations in that in that space participants in that space sorry um, so there's always the potential for a kind of as Sarah Ahmed uh, reminds us a kind of miss or a non-alignment yeah. between kind of individuals and kind of atmosphere but as for kind of what feels that atmosphere um, you can and you can that atmosphere can be felt in the vitality of a conversation mm. between two people so the unit there is the is the two is the being in relation of the two and the atmosphere might not be something kind of consciously reflected upon by either, um, but it might be something which is in the tempo and the rhythm and the tone of the speech between them. So it's felt by two. It, atmosphere might be felt by by uh, almost all of the participants in that situation, where when where there's a certain kind of ritualized moment where everyone stands up and whatever they do at formals. I've never been to one, um, possibly never will. <laughs> This is true. Do not speak <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast about the ceiling. For the for the benefit of the podcast, it was it was an incredibly ornate dressing gown. <laughs> We're just gonna move over. We will Yeah, we will we will move very quickly from this and okay. never speak of it again. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's an interesting question, this, because I think geographers have been um, enraptured. I think geographers have kind of been enraged <laughs> by the focus on affect. I think it's been a source and a site of contestation and antagonism for all kinds of reasons. I think the, the interest and engagement with affect has kind of waxed and waned. There's been different kinds of intensities through that engagement. I mean, I, again, I kind of... In answering this question, I begin from um, begin from what I think conceptual work does, and I think conceptual work is um, simultaneously a kind of interruption and a promise. And so, for me, why did geographers become kind of, in, in your terms, enraptured, or some geographers become enraptured by affect? Well, I think I think to begin with, I it's a question of what did it interrupt, um, and I think what it interrupted was um, a particular way of presuming how subjects, how people relate to the world around them, um, that people, first of all, before they engage in, uh, live in the world, um, that they represent that world to themselves before they act. And I think affect was in some ways part of a, part of a whole cluster um, of different terms um, 
uh, terms loosely associated, in geography at least, with non-representational theories, loosely associated with Sarah Watmore's development of hybrid geographies approaches, which are, which are all about trying to think about a different relation between kind of subject and world. Um, so there's a question, first of all, what does a concept interrupt? Um, but there's also, for me, simultaneously, a question of what does a concept promise? Like, what, does it, what, does it, what new thoughts or new ways of researching or new political or ethical acts and, and uh, uh, relations does it, does it potentially open up? I think, I think a concept is a, is a source of hope, in a way, um, in, very, in very kind of minor ways. Um, and so for me, kind of like, I was kind of thinking about this on the train down. Like, what, what did the question of affect kind of open up? And it opened up just kind of really simply, uh, trying to understand the, the forms of connection and disconnection that people have to the processes and forces that exceed them but constitute them. Which so is a brilliant link to my next question, is how to affect explain the persistence of neoliberalism, which is the subject of the paper. Which is the subject of the paper, yeah. Um, <coughs> again, it's kind of, it's to, it's, this is, the whole question of persistence um, and kind of endurance and continuation um, has always really interested me in relation to affect. Um, a lot of the work on affect has been, if you like, emphasised the kind of like the eventalness of affect, the way in which kind of affects never quite fit with an already existing kind of system. There's something disjunctive about them, something in that moment of kind of of, of kind of intensity. Um, it can't. It can never be reduced down to this reproduction of a kind of already existing system or it can only with difficulty. But I've never really understood the interesting issue around affect in those terms. I've always, uh, for me, affect has always been a way of trying to understand the forms of connection, disconnection that people have with the world, whilst holding on to um, paradox and ambivalence and contradiction in those attachments and investments. I think this is what someone like um, Lauren Ballant does incredibly, uh, incredibly. Um, in a way that's quite different, actually, to some of the other writers like Bill Connolly, less of a space for paradox and contradiction and kind of ambivalence. So to go directly to the question of the um, persistence of neoliberalism, um, I, I, kind of tr I wanted to think affect in relation to neoliberalism um, because, of a, uh, because I, I, I really agreed with the critiques of the emphasis on the subject and subject formation in some uh, Foucauldian-inspired critical work on neoliberalism. So I was really influenced by the critiques of people like Stephen Collier, uh, Wendy Lana to an extent, um, Clive Barnett, um, about the overemphasis on the, sub on the subject, uh, or on the overemphasis on, on the relation between the persistence of neoliberalism and the formation of a particular kind of subject, you know, the, the self-responsibilizing subject of choice. Mm. Um, I, 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 to put simply, um, I neither think process of subject subject formations produce the subjects they attempt to produce, nor do I think neoliberalism needs subjects in its own image to continue. Right. Um, which is, which is and, and the second of those points so is the most important. So neoliberalism might persist even if we aren't self-regulating along the lines we might like. Exactly, exactly. That was always my... So the question then, question then, then became, what does af how, how to think the persistence of neoliberalism? Of course, this, this whole question, and I realise I'm kind of going on a little... But th this whole question turns on what we mean by neoliberalism, what kind of thing neoliberalism is. And obviously, there's different accounts of the kind of thing neoliberalism is. Um, particular stage of capitalism, uh, particular kind of series of policy prescriptions and programs, uh, ideological or discursive formation, 
etc. etc. Um, and my, my starting point was what what if what if one of one additional thing, one supplementary thing, um, not to the exclusion of those other kinds of things neoliberalism is, but one supplementary um, thing is that neoliberalism is 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 a cluster of affective qualities. Uh, neoliberalism is a particular feeling of freedom. Neoliberalism is a certain attachment to competition. Um, neoliberalism is a certain hope, albeit a thwarted or already always disappointed. But neoliberalism isn't a government policy, it's a, it, or it, a corporate, it's our atmosphere. Exactly, exactly. But, 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 uh, but it's not an either or for right, me. Right, right. I think neoliberalism is multiple kinds of things. Mm. And so for me it was about supplementing, not replacing. It was about it was about supplementing the, the kinds of things work considers neoliberalism to be by simultane by also thinking of uh, neoliberalism as an atmospheric kind of thing. Okay, um, so if we think of neoliberalism as an atmospheric kind of thing, um, what I then wanted us to discuss is to think about how atmospheres and effects and emotions might be used to destabilize this neoliberal project because. We've seen that emotions were galvanised to support Trump, to support Brexit. Mm -hmm. How could atmospheres, effects, emotions be mobilised to undermine neoliberalism? This is this is this is obviously a like a, a huge um, question, um, and I'm reminded of the how can I put this um, the problem of, of of speaking as if you have as if your kind of theoretical kind of like tools provide you with. Um, political answers. Um, they don't. There's there's so much additional work to do. Um, I, uh, first thing to say is that any kind of anti or counter um, neoliberal, neoliberal, neoliberal kind of uh, political movement is already al always attempted to tell other stories that that um, galvanise through um, affect and emotion, which attempt to resonate through affect and emotion. Um, those stories are often told in one tone. Um, their tones of the, their their tone of the, of the catastrophic harm that neoliberalism has brought or will bring, and of course that telling stories in in that tone, um, with that kind on through that kind of affective register must have its place. Mm. Um, but neoliberalism as a kind of everyday phenomenon um, is uh, far from coherent. Always, always, already, always um, imbricated in kind of mixed up with uh, other kind of affective qualities. So it's unsurprising that telling a story in those catastrophic tones perhaps doesn't resonate with kind of how neoliberalism with becomes an everyday as an everyday phenomenon. And of course here, I, I should say that, um, you know, there are multiple neoliberalisms. We, we yeah. to, we, we, we're in danger of doing kind of great violence here across kind of thinking between global south, global north. But so I, I think in terms of a kind of counter alternative, it's about it's about thinking of a kind of reversal of the various, the various, if you like, things that I think an affective perspective allows you to understand it, um, in different kinds of ways about neoliberalism. So there's a, there's a few for me. First of all, is um, one of them is is like how do people attach to, um, the, if you like, the promises mm. of kind of ne of neoliberalism. The American dream. Yeah, the prom yeah the promises of um, competition, mm. the promises of freedom. Um, how how are those um, hopes invested, exactly? How are those hopes invested, and, and what's the particular form that hope takes there, mm. and how and how can you establish other kinds, different kinds of relations with mm. with those? When, when we presume that those hopes and promises invested in, um, if you like, forms that have been 
disappointed or, dis or and, and are perpetually disappointable if the, if the hopes and promises invested in them are kind of weak, mm. if they're in Lauren Balance terms, if they're, if they're cruel. Mm. Um, so I think it's about thinking about attachment to promises. Um, I think it's about also thinking about, okay, what are people's modes of relation with neoliberal policies and programmes beyond enthusiastic endorsement? Like I, I really buy the, the, the work of people like Mark Fisher, um, Jeremy Gilbert, which effectively say there, there, are, there are modes of relation with neoliberal policies and programmes which are, which are neither based around kind of outright rejection nor are they based around enthusiastic endorsement. It's a whole middle range, mm -hmm. if you like. Example, Apathy, me, acquiescence. Or me teaching in a university that demands tuition fees. That's like, I'm just part of a machine. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and what's your mode of relation with that? Um, the mode of relation is like acquiescence, yeah, exactly. kind of like mild kind acquiesced. of... <laughs> well, <laughs> as am I, <laughs> you know, as am I. Um, resignation. Kind of uh, these, these middle range of agencies, which I, which I, I don't think as kind of social scientists we talk about enough. I really don't think we talk about them enough. Um, and then I think, um, if you like, the, the kind of the third kind of reversing to think about to open up a kind of different kind of politics is actually kind of what's the mode of relation with alternatives here? Yeah. How are how how are possibilities made present and become because something? People might not even be consciously or, or contemplate an alternative. Neoliberalism is the only game in town. It's the only thing we adopt. It's the only thing we, we, we think about. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea, so for example, when I speak to my students about tuition fees, they never even consider the possibility of not having tuition fees. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so what's that process? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's, that's about the, you know, it's a process that many have, many have written about in terms of the, like, how, what's the process through which possibilities are foreclosed? What's the process whereby alternatives are, if, even if they surface, are denigrated as unrealistic, mm. um, are mocked as mm. somehow kind of beyond the realms of, of common sense. Naive. Naive, yeah. I mean, I, th I think this, this, I mean, I think if we think about the UK political situation, I think, I think these forms of kind of denigration attached to the figure of Jeremy Corbyn yeah. very quickly, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a whole series of other issues going yeah. on there, but, but, I, but I think there was, a, there was a, an, an, an intensification of all the ways in which possibility is foreclosed around him, him as a figure. Um, so, so I think there's something about how kind of possibilities are allowed or not, but it, it'd be such complicated terrain. I, I, had, I, had a, I had a, taught a module this year called Neoliberal Life, um, which was all about the kind of affective dynamics of, mm. of um, well, let's call them neoliberal societies, even though we explored the, the problems of naming a society mm. in one way. Um, and one of the, several of the students actually analysed as part of their assessment um, uh, the, the Christmas ad adverts by supermarkets in the UK. Mm. Um, and it's brilliant work, you know, they, 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 they did a great job at kind of really, really drawing out the specificity of the form. And so they analysed, one of the things they analysed was the Sainsbury's mm -hmm. advert, which basically there was a, um, a father who was pulled in multiple directions um, and uh, between, between family, between work, between kind of some idea of fulfilment, and he was literally kind of stretched out. Mm -hmm. um, and so he had to clone himself to kind of to 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 be able to um, uh, enable to fulfil mm. kind of all these and 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 the whole kind of tagline of the um, of the advert was was about give about the greatest gift being the gift of you you can give to your kind of loved one and you know in in that advert was all the kind of ambiguities and kind of paradoxes and contradictions of people's affective relations with neoliberalism mm. um, of course kind of, and, and and then all 
which imme you immediately begin to think about those debates about co-option of kind of, if you like, dissonant energies in the everyday, which, but which never find their political form. Mm. You know, the idea that people are pulled in multiple directions never finds a form in kind of conventional, prote conventional protest. You know, it doesn't find a form in that, in that genre of, if you like, um, the catastrophic. Um, but instead what it does is, um, it, it, but nor is it kind of like co-option as we traditionally understood. Mm. Uh, you know, there's something about but the supermarket adverts which resonate <laughs> um so you and, and i think realize in that moment um the uh, how can i put this the, the the question of the question of disruption or the kind of the opposite the opposition or alternative becomes incredibly difficult mm. if you think about the effect and there's some there's some great work being done on this i should say at the end you know, like um Great work being done, uh, particularly on kind of something like everyday geographies of austerity, which yeah. precisely get mm. at the at the kind of ambiguities and paradoxes. Um, with and someone not like by, not just by academics, but also by filmmakers like Ken Loach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, although I think Ken's like Ken Loach is really interesting because you, I, I'm thinking of work of people like um, Esther Hitchin at Durham, uh, Ruth Rayner at Newcastle, and in some ways Ken Loach's film, um, you know, it has a you know, it, it has a particular, it has a, it, it has a, like, the tone is one-dimensional. Um, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's powerful, um, but the tone is one of, um, the to tone is one where there is a clear divide um, between, if you like, uh, the figure of morality, of figures of morality and kind of the system. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, th and I think, I think perhaps we need to learn to tell stories with more ambiguity or ambivalence. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much, Ben, for enabling us to think about our emotions and to use them to understand neoliberalism. I now, I now release you. Brilliant, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>